Hello and welcome to Queen V, the life of Queen Victoria. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. If you wish to support this podcast, there will be a link provided for you in the show details and it will be very much appreciated as it goes to help support the cost of maintaining the podcast and our website. With that said, sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of Queen V, the life of of Queen Victoria. And from this date onwards, really, there is, there is a great change in the attitude of the British to the Indian people. This feeling coincided with new inventions and initiatives that would bring the two worlds of England and India closer together, with horrific results for both. In the days before the Suez Canal, the passage from England to India was round the southern tip of Africa, a journey of some 14,000 miles that could take up to six months by sailing ship. But in 1837, the first year of Victoria's reign, the East India Company employed a retired naval officer to find a faster route. Thomas Waghorn was typical of the Victorians who would expand the British Empire. Part adventurer, part visionary, part man of business. He proposed a shortcut to India, across Egypt and down the Red Sea. Most people thought he was mad. The overland journey across Egypt was plagued by bandits, and the Red Sea was prone to sudden storms. That made it hazardous for large sailing ships. But Britain had pioneered the age of steam and Waghorn gambled that steamships could operate on the Red Sea without fear of wind or current. As a coaling station, he used the port of Aden, the first colony acquired in Victoria's reign. Soon, regular services were plying the Red Sea between Aden and Suez. More traditional methods were employed to smooth the journey across Egypt Camels, carriages, and hefty bribes to buy off the bandits. Before long, Waghorn was running a thriving business. But his shortcut to the Orient would stir up unexpected trouble in India. The long sea voyage around the Cape had deterred many English women from joining their menfolk in the Far East. But Waghorn's shortcut made the passage to India much easier for them. In addition to the wives came thousands of young women who hoped to attract one of the company's eligible bachelors. These women were to have a dramatic effect on the way of life enjoyed by the men who ran India. With the coming of the women, there was increasing tendency to establish separate enclaves uh, for Europeans, known as contunements, which were usually on the outskirts of cities. And in these places, the Europeans uh, were able to live in, it, in their own houses. Uh, they would socialize uh, together. 
they wouldn't even uh, go into the town to, to do their shopping. They had their own cantonment shops so that they never had to go to the native bazaar. So they were completely enclosed. And in this situation, the European women had really very little contact with the outside world. Their main contact with the Indians was with servants, and these were people whom they commanded uh, as inferiors. They learnt some basic Hindi words, um, which were often the most insulting forms of address to people. Um, but they, they, they did this because this was the way you addressed your servants. For another thing, of course, there was the sexual uh, aspect of it. They didn't want their menfolk to be associated with Indian women, understandably so, really. But that meant that the Gulf was driven through the relationship between Britons and uh, Indians. The amusingly playful Bibi was pushed into the shadows, slowly, but not entirely, receding. Now, instead of spending his off-duty hours in the Bibi Gar or with his men in the native quarters, the company officer was expected to retire to his bungalow and the bosom of his English family. It was a bosom that often quivered with righteous indignation at what was glimpsed of the world beyond the European compound. The daughter of an English merchant in Lucknow complained bitterly. The streets are never known to be swept, and flies abound in such numbers that sometimes the shops can only be opened at night. Besides which, the place is infested with monkeys that unscrupulously walk off with all they can lay their hands upon. Such women were scandalized by tales of the pleasures sampled by the native rulers in the privacy of their royal palaces, and by those more widely available in the natch houses of the native quarters. It was not only English women who demanded change. The same steamships from England brought out missionaries who were determined to make India not only more civilized, but more Christian. The missionaries who came um, were very intolerant of Indian religions, particularly Hinduism, which they saw as a religion of superstition, of dirt and squalor, but also of idol worship. We must unite to condemn the barbarous and obscene rites of Hindu superstition. The chairman of the East India Company, himself a fervent evangelist, suggested that the company might do more in India than just make money. We might diffuse among their inhabitants, long sunk in darkness, vice, misery, the light and benign influence of the truth. There were obviously some practices carried on in India which were, you know, by any standards, reprehensible. The most disturbing of these practices was the Hindu tradition of 
Sati, burning a widow alive on her dead husband's funeral pyre, ritually prepared by the priest with water, milk, and honey. When a delegation of Indian notables protested that Sati was a time-honored custom of their people, General Sir Charles Napier spoke for many of his countrymen. My people, too, have a custom. When men burn women alive, we hang them. We can justify that the British attempts to root out these practices, but I don't think we can justify the way that they, they were made into symbols of Indian degeneracy. There were too many young men in a hurry in India. They come out to Britain, from Britain, with the best of intentions, believing that they had come to India, were about to remake the country, had come as civilizers. And at the same time, uh, many of them were quite fervent evangelical Christians. They were contemptuous of Indian beliefs, uh, openly uh, ridiculed Indian religions and customs, and behaved in a way which suggested to a lot of Indians that the momentum of change was quickening and that it was unstoppable. Some Indians decided to make a stand. They would fight and die to defend their religions and culture. One of them was a young Muslim called Azamullah Khan. He would prove to be one of Britain's most deadly enemies. Azimullah's dealings with the British began as a child when he was brought by his mother to a Christian mission in the north of India. Famine was stalking the region, and mother and child were starving. The mission took them in. Azimullah was educated in the mission school where he learned to speak English and French. But he had been born a Muslim and he resisted all attempts to convert him to Christianity. When he left the mission, he took a job as Kitmutgar, or butler in the home of an English family. He joined a great army of servants who catered to the needs of the British in India. From the relays of punkawalas who fanned the air in the stifling bungalows, to the trusted ayahs who looked after the children, and to the lofty Kitmutgars who served at table. Many remained faithful to their British families through a lifetime of service. But others nursed a bitter, even murderous resentment against the Sahibs and Mem Sahibs whose whims they had to satisfy. Such a man was Azimullah Khan. In the 1850s, Azimullah joined the followers of an Indian nobleman with his own grievances against the British. Nana Sahib was the leader of a once mighty Hindu nation, the Marathas, 
who had been defeated by the armies of the East India Company. Nana's father had been paid an annual pension by the company to keep his family in princely style and to maintain a small army. But when his father died, the pension died with him. His enraged heir, Nana Sahib, decided to appeal to the directors of the East India Company in London, and the man he chose to represent him was Azamullah Khan. In 1853, Azimullah traveled to Britain, expecting to see the great source of power that had so impressed Muslim writers before him. It cannot be without the will of that one supreme being that this small island, which seems on the globe like a mole on the body of man, should command the greater part of the world and keep the rest in awe. But Azamullah was astonished by the smoke and squalor of London. Here was none of the wealth and dignity maintained by the British in India. Instead, he saw the drunks and the whores, the beggars and the street urchins. Whole families trudging to factories and workshops. In the engine room of empire, the smoke and the dirt blinded Azimullah to the power and the wealth. When the East India Company rejected his appeal on behalf of Nana Sahib, Azimullah was indignant. England will yet regret the manner in which it has used my master. It seemed an empty threat, but fate would provide him with the opportunity and the weapon. As Azimullah began his return journey, the British rushed headlong into the first major war of Victoria's reign. It was provoked by fears for the security of the overland link to India pioneered by Thomas Waghorn. In the spring of 1854, Russian armies were sweeping through the Balkans and the British public clamored for action. First of all, people thought, well, the overland route must be protected the whole of the Middle East was suddenly seen as a defensive barrier. If somehow someone got across the Middle East, they could invade India. Well, after all, you know, all these uh, statesmen and uh, generals are all learnt in their public schools about Alexander the Great. He'd done it, so why couldn't someone else? What if the Russians try and follow Alexander the Great? The Tsar had a million men. The figure was always said, a million men, and he could somehow march them to India. What would the Indian people do? Would they support the British, or would they support the invader? But the government was divided. The Prime Minister wrote to the Queen, No doubt it may be very agreeable to humiliate the Emperor of Russia, but it is paying a little too dear for the pleasure to cover Europe with confusion, misery and blood. It was a view shared by Victoria's German-born husband, Prince Albert, 
His opposition to war became widely known, and the public turned on him in fury. Albert wrote to his brother, The public has graciously selected me as its scapegoat to answer for its not yet having come to war. The English aristocracy had never accepted the prince as one of their own. They sneered at his dress, the open-necked collar and the thigh-length boots he wore to go hunting. Not the English style at all. A letter to the Times wryly speculated on the reasons he was disliked by the upper classes. He does not gamble, does not use offensive language, and does not keep an opera dancer. The Queen suggested another. It is that unbounded dislike in England of foreigners, which breaks out continually and is very painful. A damaging rumour was circulated that Albert was secretly in the pay of the Russians. Albert did not want war. He felt that whatever was going to happen could be settled peacefully. And when he tried to settle it peacefully, when he tried to get the nations to think in terms of uh, a conference uh, to end the war, he found that people saw him as pro-Russian. And at one point, there was a rumor spreading about London that Albert had been arrested as a spy and thousands of people went to the Tower of London to stare up and see where Albert was peering out of a window, perhaps, a barred window in the tower. Of course, he wasn't there. This was nonsense. But it gives you an idea of how Albert was uh, thought of at that time. From somewhat more comfortable quarters in the Royal Palace of Windsor, the prince wrote to friends in Germany. We might fancy we are living in a madhouse. The stupidest trash is babbled to the public, so stupid you would not give it to the pigs to litter in. The madness against Albert passed, but not the fever for war. In March 1854, a British fleet sailed for the Black Sea with 30,000 troops. They joined French and Turkish forces in an attack on the Russian naval base of Sebastopol in the Crimea. With the outbreak of hostilities, Albert knew where his duty lay. He embarked for France to review the troops assembled for dispatch to the Crimea and cement the shaky alliance with the French emperor. Charles Dickens was on vacation in France when he saw the two men riding past at the head of a troop of cavalry. Albert's diplomacy was a great success. Dickens saw bonfires lit all along the coast to celebrate the alliance between Britain and France. Dickens made his own contribution by lighting 120 candles in the window of his rented cottage on the cliffs above the English Channel. But in the Crimea, there was little to celebrate. It had been 40 years since the British army had fought a major war. It was ill-prepared, and worse led. The army that went to the Crimea hadn't been in action in any meaningful way since the Battle of Waterloo 40 years before, but it was exactly the same. The weaponry, the training, the systems, everything was exactly the same as it had been during the Napoleonic Wars. The world had moved on since then, but the army hadn't. And Lord Raglan, who was the commander of the Victorian army, had no military experience. He never commanded as much as a platoon. So they went out there, and practically everything that could go wrong went wrong. 
British officer described the conditions. The men stand day and night in trenches full of water, holding their muskets in their cramped and half-frozen hands, the rain soaking the only clothes they have in the world, which once wet will remain damp forever in this climate. The conditions of the, of the troops were was absolutely awful. That They had uh, virtually no supplies, no medical backup at all. They were starving. They were uh, running with lice. They had no tents. They lived in uh, waterlogged trenches. Uh, it, it was a small, ghastly pre-run, if you like, of, of the Great War. Britain's allies were better equipped and better nourished. A dragoon in the French army reported that the British were so desperate they would exchange their boots for something to eat. We give them what we can. It is pitiful to see such superb men asking permission to gorge themselves on the dregs in our mess tins. Dysentery and cholera swept the ranks, and disease was followed by fatal blunders on the field of battle. The Crimea witnessed the most memorable single fiasco in British military history the charge of the Light Brigade. The Light Brigade was the finest cavalry force in Europe, but it was commanded by George Brudenell, Earl of Cardigan, who treated war as just another aristocratic hobby, like fox hunting. He was sent a written order to recover some British cannon that had been seized by the Russians to his right. Cardigan read this and looked around, and the only guns he could see were the Russian guns directly to his front and other Russian guns on either flank. So, um, being as he was a rather impetuous officer and no, not one over endowed with brains, he uh, decided to attack. Um, his wonderful last line as he drew his sword was, here go the last of the Brudenals, because he was in no doubt that if they went into that valley, most of them weren't coming out. And it was a total shambles. Cardigan led the Light Brigade into the wrong valley, a valley lined on three sides with Russian artillery. The carnage was described by his men in flashes of horrific detail. We advanced at a gallop amid a fearful fire from front, left and right of grape, shell and canister. Horses and men fell thick and fast. Leading objects in one's path. Sometimes a man, sometimes a horse. They were cut to pieces. They did actually reach the Russian guns and uh, kill the Russian gunners. And all around, you know, on the slopes, people were watching aghast with their hands over their eyes. Of the 600 men who charged into the Valley of Death, barely half rode back alive. 30,000 troops had been sent to the Crimea. Within a year, two-thirds were dead or wounded. For the first time in the history of conflict, the suffering of the men and the failings of the generals 
were described in graphic detail to the public at home. For the Crimea introduced the world's first war correspondent, William Russell of the London Times. The noblest army ever sent from these shores has been sacrificed to the grossest mismanagement. Incompetence, lethargy and stupidity reign, revel and riot in the camp before Sebastopol and in the hospitals of Scutari. Among the millions who read Russell's dispatches was the embittered Indian envoy Azumullah Khan. As a result, he decided to make a detour on his way back to India to see for himself what was happening to the British Army and the Crimea. He toured the hospitals where a woman called Florence Nightingale was fighting to save the lives of the British wounded and bring some order to the chaos. Even in the slums of London, Azimullah had never seen the British brought so low. It reinforced his belief that they were far from invincible. On his return to India, Azimullah faced an uncomfortable meeting with Nana Sahib. He had failed to win back the prince's titles and pensions, and he had spent lavishly of his master's funds. But Azimullah had rehearsed an argument that he hoped would save him from Nana Sahib's displeasure. The British were finished, he claimed. All they needed was a final push, and then the disinherited ruler could take all that was due to him, and more. He could exact a savage revenge for all the humiliations heaped upon him by the East India Company. Over the next few months, Azimullah's agents joined other dissident Indians in a campaign of rumor and subversion. They fanned the smoldering resentment aroused by the evangelists who appeared to threaten the sacred beliefs of Hindu and Muslim alike. They whispered that the British had been defeated in the Crimea and that a Russian army was now advancing on India. None of this was true. It was the Russians who had been defeated. But the rumor was widely believed. The British agents of the East India Company were puzzled and alarmed. As tensions rose, they tried to keep their fears from their families. But their only security rested in the native troops of the East India Company. Sikhs, Gurkhas, Patans, Hindus, and Muslims. By the 1850s, their ranks had swollen to over 260,000. 
more than ten times the number of British soldiers stationed in India, and more than twice the size of the entire British army around the world. Their loyalty was vital if the British were to remain in India, and in the wake of the Crimean War, the company made a seemingly trivial decision that would prove disastrous. British instructors began to train their Indian troops to use a new rifle, the Lee Enfield, with a cartridge that was greased with animal fat. A rumor spread that the grease was made from a mixture of beef and pork, one forbidden to Hindus, the other to Muslims. It triggered a revolt known to the British as the Indian Mutiny and to the Indians as the First War of Independence. The immediate reason for the revolt was the belief amongst many of the Indian soldiers that they were being polluted deliberately by the British with cartridges which had either beef or pork fat. However, once it actually started, a whole range of grievances came to the fore which were connected with, uh, with the things that the British had been doing in the preceding 30 years. The revolt began in the garrison town of Mirut in the far north, when 90 troopers refused to handle the new cartridges. The soldiers were publicly stripped of their uniforms and sentenced to 10 years' hard labor. The next day was a Sunday, May the 10th, 1857. As the British settled down after the church service, their slumbers were disturbed by the sound of gunfire. Native troops had stormed the prison and released their 90 comrades. Then, joined by a mob from the bazaar, they charged into the British quarter. Barracks and bungalows were torched. Men, women, and children were slaughtered. The great mutiny had begun. At first, it was confined to one area in the north. The isolated British garrisons throughout India held their breath to see if the mutiny would spread. So, too, did Nana Sahib. Despite the urgings of Azamullah Khan and others, he held back until he knew how the British would react. Just a few miles from his palace, was the garrison town of Kanpur, a magnet for many of the young women who had left Britain in search of a husband. One of them had been lent a piano by Nana Sahib, who was friendly with several of the British families in the garrison. Sincerely or not, Nana Sahib assured them that he would protect British women and children with his personal army if local Indian troops joined the mutiny. Throughout May, the peace held and the British did their best to continue as usual. It was the calm before the storm. On June 4, 1857, the Indian troops attacked their British officers and set fire to their quarters. The entire European community of 1,000 men, women and children fled to a half-built barrack block on the edge of the city hastily fortified against attack. 
Two days later, Nana Sahib joined the rebels with his own army and took personal command of the siege. The makeshift fortress was raked by cannon and musket fire. As Amullah mockingly called it, Fort Despair. On June 10th, news of the revolt reached Britain, and 30,000 troops were sent to deal with the crisis. But it would take several months for the slow-moving troop ships to reach India. Meanwhile, at Kanpur and nearby Lucknow, the beleaguered British garrisons held out week after week under constant bombardment. Several hundred women were besieged within makeshift defences. Gradually whittled away, several of them having babies as went along, disease coming in, of course, lack of food. It was the most horrific experience. One of the women, 18-year-old Amelia Horn, described the horrors in detail. Every shot that struck the barracks was followed by heart-rending shrieks of women and children who were either killed outright by the projectiles or crushed to death by falling beams, masonry and splinters. Sometimes a whole family would be found lying dead side by side. The only source of water was a well swept by sniper fire. On one occasion, we were obliged to drink some water mixed with human blood from the wounds of a native nurse or ayah, who, while standing nearby, had both her legs carried away by the bursting of a shell. On June 12th, the hospital block was set alight by shell fire, burning many of the wounded to death and destroying all the remaining medical supplies. No relief whatever could now be offered to the sick and wounded. There was nothing now to soothe their dying moments. The heat affected their wounds, and the flies settled on them and drove them crazy. It was now that our skirts were in demand. We tore every vestige to supply bandages for the wounded. On the 25th of June, 1857, Nana Saib offered a deal. If the British would move out, he guaranteed safe conduct for the survivors to leave Kanpur by boat down the river Ganges. They had no choice but to accept. The point of departure was a Hindu temple where the faithful took their ritual baths. A fleet of boats had been assembled with native crews to punt the survivors to safety. Thatched awnings protected them from the heat of the sun. But as the Europeans climbed aboard, the boatmen leapt ashore, scattering burning embers from their cooking stoves. Hundreds of native troops emerged from hiding and fired volley after volley into the burning boats.
Mounted troopers rode into the water, slashing down with their sabers. Over 500 men, women, and children died in the massacre of Kanpur. Just four men escaped downriver to tell the tale. About 120 women and children who had survived the slaughter were rounded up on the riverbank. The captives were herded into a building where the Indian mistress of a British officer had once lived, known as a bibigar. But help was finally on the way. A scratch force of a thousand Scottish Highlanders, a few English Fusiliers and some loyal Sikhs had been sent from other parts of India. They marched down the Grand Trunk Road in the full heat of the Indian summer. Nana Sahib set out to confront them at the head of 5,000 rebels. The new rifles played a key role, picking the rebels off at long range. The result was a victory for the British. The survivors fled back to the city to warn their supporters. The British are coming like mad beasts, caring for neither cannon nor musketry. At the Bibigar, the number of captives had risen to 180 women and children, crowded into the three rooms and courtyard of the house. They included the two young friends who, barely five weeks before, had been playing chamber music on Nana Saib's piano. Many of the prisoners were wounded, dying of cholera and other infections, or broken by heat and despair. A few recorded their experiences on scraps of paper, or scratched them on the walls with charcoal and broken bits of pottery. They could hear the rumble of guns as the relief force neared the city. But the faces that appeared at the windows were not those of British soldiers. The mutineers fired two volleys into the crowded room. But sickened by the slaughter, they refused to fire again. Four butchers were recruited from the town. It was a little before sunset when they entered the Bibigar. They emerged an hour later. At the sight of them, the remaining onlookers fled into the darkness. In the morning, a party of volunteers arrived to clear the bodies. They dragged them out of the building, stripped them of their blood-soaked clothing, and threw them down a nearby well. Eyewitnesses reported that several women and children were still alive, but they were thrown in along with the mutilated corpses. I think the attacks on women can be explained in terms of a belief that the honour of a particular group was reposed in the women uh, and often uh, when, when a group uh, w was conquered in war 
women were attacked, raped, taken away into slavery and so on. Uh, this, was, this was part of humiliating an enemy. The streets of Kanpur were deserted as the relief force entered the city. Thousands had fled before them. Loyalists directed the advance guard to the Bibigar. The first to open the door was a young officer of the 78th Highlanders. He reported that the scene he saw was the most awful that the eye could behold. He was wrong. A few moments later, he found the well. The news reached Britain a few weeks later. When the details begin of the mutiny begin to appear in the British press in the summer of 1857, there is horror and outrage. Uh, stories were coming back of the murder of European women and children, often in the most hideous circumstances. And the, the sort of respect which the Victorians had for women and for children, this was outraged. Women at that time in Great Britain had been elevated to a ridiculous pedestal of sanctity and virtue, which made them on a different plane from men, and meant that the attack on them by people of another race was not only sexually wicked, but was actually religiously wicked too. And so the, the stories that came out of Kanpur, for the women to be taken away into a small house and quite deliberately and obscenely slaughtered, affected the English public very, very greatly. Victoria wrote to the wife of the Governor-General in Calcutta. Our thoughts are almost solely occupied with India. My heart bleeds for the horrors that have been committed by people once so gentle on my poor countrywomen and innocent little children. It haunts me day and night. The massacres at Kanpur were not only the worst atrocity the British could imagine. They were regarded by the men who had conquered India as the most shameful reproach. They had failed their women and children. The darkness of the well at the Bibigar closed over them all. Atrocities, well, that was actually war. And when you have war, there are bound to be some excesses. On both sides, yes. Well, it, was, it started off with uh, a bunch of people, soldiers, who had a simmering resentment against the British who were lording it over them. So when they got the chance to get back at them, they were, maybe were quite excessive. But uh, thereafter, the retributions were quite terrible. Thousands of British reinforcements poured into the affected area. Nana Sahib's palace was looted and leveled to the ground. But Nana Sahib and his followers had fled to the mountains. And with them, Azimullah Khan. They were hunted by the British for years, but never found. Instead, the British turned on other targets for their revenge. What had happened at Kanpur? became the justification for brutal reprisals. 
we will have people like Dickens uh, saying, you know, we must retaliate with the fiercest measures. Well, they, need, they could save their breath. This was already happening in India. Clergymen are talking in terms of we need more massacres, more must be killed. And it reached such a point that some observers thought that the British people were suddenly revealing a deep-down savagery which everyone thought had disappeared. Captured mutineers were taken to the Bibigar and made to lick the congealed blood from a patch of floor. Then they were strung up from the nearest tree. But the noose did not satisfy the army's thirst for revenge. Any rebel whom they captured, they would either kill on the spot or they would torture them um, or ritually pollute them by forcing, say, Muslims to eat pork or Hindus to eat beef, after which they would hang them um, from a tree, from a scaffold, or blow them from guns. This they did by uh, attaching their arms to the large wheels of the guns of those days and their body in front of the barrel of the gun and just blowing them to, to pieces. Back in England, powerful voices were raised against the British descent into barbarity. At Windsor Castle, the Queen and Prince Albert sank into a deep gloom. The news from India seemed a mockery of Albert's hopes for the spread of civilized values through trade. At his urging, the Queen wrote to the Governor-General in India. I should deeply deprecate any retribution on old men, women and children, for then how could we expect any respect or esteem for us in the future? As the mood of grief and shame descended on Britain, Victoria declared October 7th a national day of humiliation. So that we and our people may humble ourselves before Almighty God in order to obtain pardon for our sins and send up prayers to the Divine Majesty for the restoration of tranquility. But one thing would not be restored. The British government decided that a country the size of India could no longer be ruled by a private trading company. Prince Albert helped draft the royal proclamation that assumed direct rule by the British Crown. He insisted... The document should breathe feelings of generosity, benevolence and religious toleration. The Queen agreed. In the final version, she assured her Indian subjects... The deep attachment which Her Majesty feels to her own religion and the comfort and happiness which she derives from its consolations will preclude her from any attempt to interfere with the native religions, and her servants will be directed to act scrupulously in accordance with her directions. May the proclamation be the beginning of a new era, and may it draw a veil over the sad and bloody past. The Queen is suddenly, as it were, projected as India's new ruler, and she promises her people that she will take care of them in a motherly way. She will give them peace and justice and honest government. And the British accession of power, or total power in London, is a statement that there is a new beginning. 
and that those who wish to introduce change will do so more gingerly and carefully in future. As a symbol of her trust in her new subjects, from then on, on almost every occasion she appeared in public, two Indian attendants would be at her side. But not the man who had been there since the early years of her reign, the man who had taught her how to rule an empire. In December 1861, Prince Albert fell ill at Windsor Castle. The Prime Minister was alarmed. The Queen was not. The Prince has had a feverish cold these last few days, which disturbed his rest at night. But Her Majesty has seen His Royal Highness similarly affected before and hopes that in a few days it will pass off. But the Prince grew worse. The doctors suspected that he had fallen victim to a killer disease lurking in the drains of the medieval castle, typhoid. Victoria charted his decline in snatches of anguished prose. In an agony of despair about my dearest Albert, and crying much for saw no improvement, and my dearest Albert was so listless and took so little notice. She recorded the final scene in Albert's bedroom on December 14th, 1861. I bent over him and said to him, It is your little wife. I took his dear left hand, which was already cold, though the breathing was quite gentle, and I knelt down by him. Two or three long but perfectly gentle breaths were drawn, the hand clasping mine, and all... All was over. That single death in Windsor Castle was to change the course of Victoria's empire. Thank you for listening to this episode of Queen Bee, the life of Queen Victoria. Remember, if you would like to support this podcast, you can look in the show description notes to find a link. Thank you and have a great day.